Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters More, the podcast for Florida Matters, WUSF public media show about the issues and events that Floridians care about. I'm Robin Sussingham, host of Florida Matters. You can hear Florida Matters Tuesday evenings at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 7.30 on WUSF 89.7 or streaming on WUSFnews.org. This week on Florida Matters, we talk about the changing role of emergency responders during active shooter situations. Coming up, a conversation with John Montez of the National Fire Protection Agency. Support for Florida Matters more comes from the National Foundation for Transplants. Right now, hundreds of Tampa residents need an organ transplant they cannot afford. Join National Foundation for Transplants, an organization providing financial relief to transplant patients for more than 35 years. Visit transplants.org to learn more. John Montez is the Emergency Services Specialist with the National Fire Protection Association. Thanks for being here, John. Thank you so much. So in the past, those emergency responders in the fire department, or EMTs, emergency medical technicians, had to wait until the threat was neutralized in an active shooting incident. In other words, the police had killed or arrested the gunman. And the consequence of that, um, which we saw at the Pulse nightclub shooting, was that victims who were shot or wounded, they had to lie there and wait until everything was over before the EMTs could go in. And the question has been whether fire department paramedics should have gone into the nightclub sooner than they did. In May, the NFPA released a set of standards and training models for active shooter response. The number that really jumps out after the Pulse nightclub shooting, 49 people died But afterwards, a study said that 16 of those people had survivable injuries. So that is a haunting number. And I'm wondering, these new standards, how will they change the actions of first responders? Well, it's our hope that these standards will force first responder agencies to work together and plan ahead for these events. The standard isn't a prevention document. It doesn't talk about assessing people's mental health or gun rights or gun prevention. What it does talk about is is these are incidents that are occurring more frequently and more severely, and we need to be prepared as communities. And in doing so, we want our first responders to train together, to come up with tactics and policies, be familiar with each other, and to use those tactics and policies to access victims as quickly as possible. So it sounds like a major push of this is just to improve the communication between the police department and the fire department and emergency management and even school districts, things like that, that there will be some line of communication between all these organizations and they can work better together. Absolutely. And that's a perfect way to put it, Robin. Um, School districts is a perfect example. Too frequently, school districts are planning in a vacuum. They're assessing their schools for threats and weaknesses by themselves. And they really need to include their local responders when they do these things. 
because their local responders can bring a different perspective to the building and to the schools. And they can think of things that school people don't think about and vice versa. The school folks can think of things and think of weaknesses that the first responders aren't even aware of. You have to build that relationship ahead of time. And then once you've done that and now you've had those discussions, then you start thinking about what do you do if something happens there? And then when you start having those discussions, you say, well, we need to practice this. Then you practice it, and then God forbid something ever happens at your school, you'll have that level of familiarity, that training, that preparedness, where everyone knows what their roles are, what their expectations are, and they can do something and hopefully, if not prevent the incident, at least respond efficiently to the incident to the best of their capabilities, so hopefully they can save the most lives. So the big change from what I've read about this, these new standards, the big change to the response, or one of the big changes to the response, would be that the paramedics would go in and try to save people before it's a completely secure situation. They wouldn't have to wait until the gunman was arrested or killed before they could go in and s- stop the bleeding. Yeah, so certainly that's a goal. It's a goal for responders to access victims as quickly as possible. And, and this level of participation, partnership, and training and exercising hopefully improves the capabilities of departments throughout the country in order to do that. Because the challenge is, is that the paramedics can't do this alone, uh, and neither can law enforcement. They need to work together. Um, and the goal certainly is to create these integrated teams and come up with your local capabilities and your local integrated tactics so you can do just that. The challenge with these incidents is, is it's very hard to know if the shooter's still where they are or where you think they are. And that goes back to being familiar with your locations. It goes back to practicing in all the different places that you can and really having these plans and this good communication system set up so that you, you can say, okay, you know, the bad guy's in the back of the building. We have a wall set up between the bad guy and the good guys, and we can get in there and help everyone in the front of the building while we address the guy in the back of the building. That takes a lot of coordination, communication. It's not easy. And that's why you have to work together and practice this far in advance. So I guess what they were looking at was that at the Pulse nightclub, they had the shooter in the bathroom. They thought they had the shooter trapped in the bathroom and people were wondering if the paramedics maybe could have come in and tried to help some of the people in the other part of the building, uh, which would have been, I guess, in your terminology called like a warm zone rather than a hot zone. Mm -hmm. That's a good example. So the challenge with Pulse, though, in that moment, from my understanding, and I'm not someone that was there, I've only read the reports is they believed that the assailant had explosive devices as well. And they weren't 100% sure that the explosive devices were in the building or not in the building. So it's hard to say what is a warm and hot zone. And in order to really truly figure that out, you need direct intelligence from the site. And, And it's hard to second guess what happened at an incident without knowing the full story. But I'll say in that scenario, in the future, the goal is certainly, if you know a zone is warm, the goal is certainly to get the people out of there and access them as quickly as possible. It sounds like part of the changes would be that paramedics and EMTs would be expected to go into a situation that is not quite as secure 
as has been in the past, and that perhaps they would be asked to wear special vests and protective um, uniforms. Is that part of it? Yeah, the standard says if, if EMTs and paramedics that aren't law enforcement based and not part of a specialized team are going to go into these warm zones intentionally, that the expectation is that they wear a level 3A NIJ, National Institute of Justice rated vest. And that's a bare minimum. Uh, and the understanding with doing that is the technical committee that wrote the new standard, NFPA 3000, felt very strongly that they need to be provided some protection if they're going to be going into these zones, similarly like law enforcement wearing the vests as well. And they said a minimum, but they also recommended helmets. They recommended other things as well, eye protection. But they needed to set that minimum because the understanding is that we're moving in that direction and that expectation across the country is shifting. Um, It's not something you can do overnight. You need to train. You need to practice. You need to have plans, policies, and procedures in place before you ever were to go and just ad hoc do this. But that's the direction we're going, yes. Has there been any pushback from paramedics and EMTs who say, you know, I I didn't sign up for this. I thought I was going to be going to a person's home that was having a heart attack and saving their life. I never thought I would be going into some sort of dangerous, active shooting, hostile event like this. Oh, I'm sure there is. And and it makes a lot of sense. You know, day one in EMT school, the first lesson you learn is scene safety, body substance isolation. You say that every time you're going to interact with a patient. What does that and mean? And this is, scene safety means that you, you only go into secure scenes and body substance isolation means that you protect yourself from bloodborne pathogens, wearing gloves and eye protection. You know, that's the first thing you learn as an EMT. And this is new and different, and certainly there's going to be complications with departments doing this around the country and, and ambulance services. For example, they're going to need to have very serious labor management discussions for those that are unionized. They're going to need to have discussions with their employees and their staff. They may have scenarios in which it's a volunteer-based thing because it, they may state legislatively not be able to force them to do these things. So this is a new direction, and and as agencies do this, they need to be very careful and plan this out ahead of time, know what their policies and procedures are, know what's within their collective bargaining agreements, work all that out, and then immediately start implementing it. So at the minimum, this is going to require some special vests, some special equipment, protective equipment Mm -hmm. for the EMTs, a lot of training ahead of time, it sounds like, a lot of coordination, What about smaller departments? What challenges would those smaller departments have from small towns that don't have the kind of resources that you'd find in Boston or even Orlando or a bigger city? What are the challenges that they're going to face? Well, first of all, they're going to have to find staff that's willing to do this um, and work out that part of it. The second challenge is is the ballistic vests. uh, Should you choose to implement those for your plans, They're expensive, and most of them are only rated five years. You have to follow the manufacturer's recommendation currently. So every five years, you're going to have to replace that stock. And you have to think about what, how much vest to buy. Do you buy vests in a bunch of different sizes? Do you buy vests for every employee? Do you buy vests or every member? Do you buy vests for a command vehicle and keep them all in one place or for every seat in every vehicle? They're really going to think about how they deploy this, and the standard doesn't say that because that's all local decisions that you need to make that work for you. 
So that's not going to be cheap, but there is funding available. Um, they can put in for federal grants uh, through the assistance for fire departments, Department of Homeland Security, State Homeland Security Grant Program. For those that are near metropolitan areas, the UASI Urban Area Security Initiative Grant Program. Um, all of those programs will support the purchase of ballistic protection for non-law enforcement responders and law enforcement. They'll do both. I wonder if the first step of a small town would just be calling, uh, calling in law enforcement from the bigger, the, from the closest big city. It might be, but I think the first step would be the police chief and the fire chief getting together and saying, let's come up with this plan together. Let's fund this together jointly and let's make this work for our community. Why don't police departments just train their SWAT teams or some people in their SWAT teams in paramedics to do some basic medical treatment um, rather than bring in another department that's not trained in law enforcement like the police department is? Well, they do. Um, Most SWAT teams in the country, if not all, have medically trained people as part of their team. The challenge is is that that's a delay in time. If you look at the Columbine incident, um, they staged outside and waited for SWAT to go in and clear the building. That's critical time that's lost because SWAT teams aren't readily assembled, ready to go in many cases. They're called in from home, they're on call, they're in duty vehicles doing their regular services, and then they have to go and change into their SWAT kits. So that would be a delay. And certainly that's a different kind of thing. What we're talking about is is accelerating all that time so that there's a way to get to people as quickly as possible. One of the things the standard does do is that it has uh, language in there that says law enforcement personnel should be trained in some form of threat-based medical care, which is that bleeding control, that, imis- that initial care under duress that the fire and EMS folks also should be trained on. And by doing that, it gives the opportunity for law enforcement officers who are in there, in those hot and warm zones, clearing them, if safe and available to care for themselves, their partners, and the public while they do that. Um, It gives them that greater knowledge base and flexibility. And if you look on um, Facebook or YouTube right now, you're seeing lots of law enforcement officers around the country are carrying um, tourniquets and bleeding control kits on on their uniforms and using them to save lives of their buddies themselves and the public. That's the kind of stuff that matters. You know, the faster you can control bleeding, the more lives you're going to save. So even law enforcement's doing it on their own, let alone working with fire and EMS to get them in there even faster as well. So the, the, the momentum has begun and it's happening. After the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, school district leaders have been included in these conversations with law enforcement and EMT, but who else needs to be part of the emergency planning? Um, universities, maybe? Mall managers? Airport managers? Big sports event organizers? Because we don't know where the next mass shooting might take place. There's always going to be someone who hasn't been in on this training and on this communication. How do we know who to include? That's a great question. So the first step is somebody in the community needs to take the lead. In the larger municipalities, the big cities, it's probably going to be an elected official designating someone. It could be an emergency manager, it could be a chief, it could be an emergency planner, someone. That person really needs to look at the entire community and evaluate the community 
for its level of risk. So if you're in a community that has a major metropolitan airport, has a sports stadium, um, has lots of bars and nightclubs, lots of public access venues, you really need to start evaluating what the level of risk is for all of those places. And that includes the managers and the people from those places. And as you do that and you evaluate that risk, you also start to build your planning team. And they don't have to be involved in every step of the planning, but they do need to be understanding of what the expectation is of the community of them and what they should expect from the community if something ever happens at their venue. You have to build those relationships as you make your plan. Then you bring in your responders, you exercise and train at those facilities. You know, prior to my job at the NFPA, I was an EMS specialist and EMS duty chief in Santa Clara County, California, um, for the entire Santa Clara County. And that's, you know, also known as Silicon Valley. And we have uh, a major international airport, a major military base and NASA base. We have all the large companies, Google, Facebook, uh, Yahoo, all of those were in Silicon Valley. And we also had Levi Stadium, which was a billion-dollar NFL stadium that was built while I was there. And we were very progressive in that our first responders got to walk through all those sites, got to familiarize themselves with those sites. The doors were marked in such a manner that our responders could be dispatched directly to a door-by-door number, and they had site plans in their vehicles. You do that ahead of time so that when a major incident happens, you're prepared. But these incidents are even more complicated. You have to include not just the schools and not just the sites and locations in your communities, but also non-governmental organizations. The American Red Cross is a good example, but there's also you know, the United Way, Salvation Army. And what about faith-based organizations? They can play a huge role in the recovery period in supporting victims and their families and first responders. So it's a real whole community gathering, let alone healthcare, public health, uh, medical examiner, coroner, everybody's got a function and a role. So it's very critical that you build a comprehensive program and you may have to parcel it out. You can't have all these people in a room at the same time trying to come up with a plan, but you have to have open lines of communication, lots of training and exercising and build that relationship. You really just have to have a good leader on the city level. On the community you level. You absolutely do. Yeah. Somebody needs to be that champion that brings people to the table. So part of the standards that NFPA came up with involve helping communities recover from a mass shooting or a similar event. What kind of recommendations does NFPA make about how communities, how communities move on from these types of events? That is such a great thing to talk about because it's the thing we think the least about. And folks in Orlando and in the Central Florida area really can appreciate this. Um, These events last with you forever. And I don't know where they are currently with the Pulse site. I was last there uh, September of last year. And we went to walk the Pulse site. And the building was still there at the time. And there was a fence. And there was that makeshift memorial. And it was a sobering reminder that these events don't go away. And there is this goal and this intent to return to normal, but there is, you have to find your new normal. It's not going to be the same ever in your community after one of these events happens to you. Um, So recovery is very complicated and it's multifaceted and there's a lot of great tools and resources out there. And one of the most beautiful things about recovery is that communities genuinely come together. 
you hear about things, you know, I'm from Boston, you hear about Boston Strong, Orlando Strong, Vegas Strong. You see the videos of the vigils and the love and support the communities have for each other. And, you know, in today's world where we can sometimes be so divided, it's amazing how much we can come together in times of need. And planning for that is challenging because when you're in the fog of it, you don't want to think about all the things you need to do. So you really want to do this ahead of time. You want to have a really good plan for donations management, managing the money and the support of the victims with the money that will pour in to support your community. You want to have a plan for spontaneous donations of supplies and equipment. Sometimes it seems like you're, you just want to help. So you bring food to the firehouse or you bring teddy bears, but that actually can overwhelm the community and the people that are trying to manage the event. So it's about messaging correctly what are the things you do need. It's about having plans in place for when things come in to make sure that they're safe and appropriate. And then another plan that you need to consider is spontaneous volunteers. After these events, generally you set up a family assistance center and that family assistance center is to support victims and their loved ones with moving on from the event and what are the things that they need to recover from the event. And people will want to help at those places, but you need to make sure that these people are appropriately credentialed and trained before you ever have them go and interact with victims from these incidents. So certainly challenging, complex, and very long-lasting um, part of these incidents, and one that we forget to plan for as communities. Yeah. Did you ever expect to have to be getting ready for incidents like the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School when you started out your career? You know, I did, um, but it's because I worked in a very, very, very forward-leaning progressive system. I worked for the city of Boston at Boston EMS, which is a third service EMS, um, you know, city-run agency. And our leadership there um, really was remembering the violence and the things that occurred in the late 80s and early 90s. A lot of them were on the street during that time, and, th and then they were in positions of leadership. So I had a ballistic vest that I could wear as part of my uniform from day one when I got on the department. Oh, wow. And we regularly trained with the police department. But one of the things we did in Boston that I think other communities can learn from is our special events, Boston Marathon, Fourth uh, of July on the Esplanade, um, the city does a really cool thing, and the whole state on Marathon Day does a really cool thing. They treat the event like it's already a mass casualty incident. They pre-plan the resources. They have integrated teams. They use unified command from the leadership level. They activate the emergency operations centers, and they use it as an opportunity to practice, but also just in case something ever happens. And they've been doing that since well into the 80s. And every year they develop it out a little more and a little more. Um, so when something major happened here, I was already in California. I wasn't here. But I know and I was confident when I saw it happen that they knew what to do. They were prepared. And when you look at the marathon and you see that they transported 196 people in less than 45 minutes all by ambulance, and you see that the only people that perished were the ones that were declared dead on scene, and every single person that was transported lived you can see that being that level of preparedness and planning was effective and it saved lives. 
John Montez is an emergency services specialist with the National Fire Protection Association. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. Listen to Florida Matters on the radio Tuesdays at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 7.30 on WUSF 89.7. You can always find it online at WUSFnews.org. I'm Robin Sussingham. Come back next week for another episode of Florida Matters More. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher.